This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Shauna Larson. Today's special episode is an excerpt from the Mayo Clinic Principles of Pain and Palliative Care Conference held on the Big Island, Hawaii. This annual conference targets the integration of pain and palliative services across disciplines. Today's selected presentation, Fibromyalgia in a 20-Minute Office Visit, is presented by Dr. Jeffrey Thompson of the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Thompson, an award-winning educator, is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, as well as sports medicine. Let's tune in. Yeah, I'd like to thank the organizers for uh, inviting me here. It is humbling to be part of this uh, conference. There's so many great presenters, and uh, they all do such a great job. Um, I really don't have anything specific to disclose other than the fact that I just realized I think this is the 13th year in a row that I've been invited to give a talk about fibromyalgia to this conference. And early on, I kind of thought I was kind of flattered that they you know, kept inviting me, but now I've come to realize that it's mainly because they can't really find anyone else who wants to give a talk about fibromyalgia, so I'm it, apparently. Um, and I was always, I'm kind of curious, why is it that fibromyalgia, that diagnosis engenders so much fear and loathing, or fear and trembling, I guess I should say, in, uh, in a lot of providers and then also in their patients. And I think it, it kind of is illustrated by a typical uh, presentation or scenario. Uh, the uh, typical patient is a middle-aged female kind of uh, coming in and coming to her fourth physician, uh, complaining of, I hurt all over the place, uh, my whole body hurts, I, I'm tired all the time, I can't, I sleep all the time, yet I'm unrefreshed, my bra brain isn't working right, uh, and then the doc sees her and does an exam and runs a bunch of tests, repeats a bunch of tests, and then bops into the room and and uh, says that, well, you know, the good news is uh, I can't find anything wrong with you, so I think, I think you're okay. I think you're, there's really nothing wrong with you. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, this poor patient, she's, she's kind of pathetic. And the, and the patient is thinking in her mind, this poor doctor, he's an idiot. And, uh, and that's why it's known as an idiopathic disorder. So. But uh, as far as the objectives for today, uh, I think we need to have you be able to describe a little bit the evolution of the muscle pain syndrome, to knowing a little bit about how these things developed over, over time is helpful. Be aware of the diagnostic criteria, describe the role of central sensitization, and then outline a treatment approach to widespread muscle pain. So really, the family tree of muscle pain syndrome starts in, in literature, the 1700s, it was just musculoskeletal pain, was, was kind of all mixed together. Then they started talking about joint pain, which was rheumatism, muscle pain, which was muscular rheumatism in the 1800s. Around 1900, this concept of fibrositis came out, um, and it was more both kind of localized pain with nodules and, and also regional pain and more widespread pain. It kind of covered the, the gamut. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, Travell and Simmons are a couple of docs that, that uh, coined the term myofascial pain and, and really took the localized part of muscle pain and, and called it myofascial pain with the tender points and nodules early on and so on. 
And really the um, more widespread kind of muscle pain was still called fibrositis, but it's redefined in the 70s as widespread pain because the criteria included you had to have 14 places of pain. So kind of by definition, it became a widespread pain uh, phenomenon. And then in the 80s, they dropped the term fibrositis because there really isn't any inflammation and, and decided fibromyalgia was a better term. Uh, and then in the 90s, they came out in 1990 with the American College of Rheumatology Criteria and just sort of codified this uh, concept of, of widespread uh, muscular type pain. Um, and as those criteria were mainly set up for research and, and not really for clinical use, and they were that have a history of widespread pain, three months at least, both sides of the body, above and below the waist, axial skeletal pain, and then these pesky uh, tender points that you have to be able to find. And 11 of 18, and suddenly you've got fibromyalgia, you only have 10, oop, no, you don't have fibromyalgia, um, and, these, and these various points. And a lot of issues with those criteria because 25% um, of the patients being treated by rheumatologists didn't really meet the criteria, so what's up with that? So they decided the new clinical criteria were proposed, uh, and they didn't want to include tender points, mainly because rheumatologists don't like to examine their patients. No, just kidding. Um, they do, they do. But, uh, but it is helpful to not have to do all the trigger points, because then you can work it into a, uh, a questionnaire and, and do this with, uh, via survey and so on. So they decided the combination of multiple areas of pain, so widespread pain, called the Widespread Pain Index, and significant associated symptoms, the symptom severity scale, was enough to really differentiate patients that they decided to have fibromyalgia from other causes of pain and so on. So the nice thing is you can hand out a sheet like this and have them mark off the areas of pain and just count them, and you've got your score, 0 to 19, of the Widespread Pain Index, or the WPI. And then there, initially, there were all these symptoms, and you had to, in the last six months, which of these did you frequently have? Well, there's a ton of things in here. And then it all added up. You only got one point if you had up to 13 of these, and then you got a second point for up to 26. And if you got more than 26 of these symptoms, you got three points, but you probably got something else going on, too, if you've got all those symptoms. So then they decided this was a little complicated to ask in a questionnaire, and, to, and so they, in they did it scientifically, but decided the same information you could get from just three of those symptoms, headache, pain, cramps in the lower abdomen, depressed mood. So you could get a point for each of those, and it worked just as well as asking all those uh, many, many uh, symptoms. And then the other part of the symptom score is the main symptoms of fibromyalgia, whether they are a no problem or three points for severe, and this is fatigue, waking unrefreshed, and cognitive symptoms. So you score those up to three, and you get nine points for that component. Uh, so then really the combination, 2010, they came out with the, the uh, modified diagnostic criteria, so the widespread pain index of greater than or equal to 7 out of 19, and then plus a symptom score greater than or equal to 5 out of the 12, and then you'd call that fibromyalgia. Um, or the WPI can be as low as 3 if the symptom score is more than or equal than 9. So if you've got a lot of symptoms um, and fewer points, then, then you can still be called uh, fibromyalgia. Um, and that, that helped because men tend to not have as many tender points. And so you read in the older literature, 90% it's females, but really it's probably closer to 50-50. I think it's more 60-40 or so, 70-30. But 
uh, the men have fewer tender points, but they tend to have symptoms as well. So the sum of the both numbers is the fibrosevarity scale or the fibromyalginous scale, uh, also known as the polysymptomatic distress scale, the PSD for short. So it's a way to get a measure of how much distress someone is having with their widespread pain if they've got uh, a high score like this. And some people use it to kind of follow how they're doing. Um, it's probably not the best one for that because there's no functional uh, component to this uh, to really follow how someone is doing. So. In, in the audience, how many fibro patients do you see per week? I just get a, get a sense of who in the audience is seeing uh, fibromyalgia patients. And so, zero, one to two, three to five, six to 10, more than 10. Oh my goodness. All right, and we're waiting to see. So, um, most people, well, a third don't see any. Well, probably because this isn't just a pain conference nowadays, it's also the, um, palliative care and so on, but quite a few people see a scattering and a few, you know, 8 to percent, 7 percent, more than 10. And so this, and it, this is a very common thing. Um, you know, the epidemiology, oops, um, you know, widespread pain by those first criteria of the of 1990 criteria was found in 11 percent of the population of Northern England. So 11 percent of the people have widespread pain. Uh, it's equal, the widespread pain components, equal among men and women, they found. In Olmsted County, uh, looking at a, the prevalence by survey was 6%, uh, but of those diagnosed with fibromyalgia, it's only 1.1%. There's, so there's a lot more out there that don't really have the diagnosis, but have that set of symptoms that would fit with having fibromyalgia. So anything that affects you know, up to 6% of the population, that's a pretty, pretty darn common thing. As far as etiology, it's really kind of unknown. Thank you. No, I'll, we'll talk some more. Um, initially, it was thought it's got to be something wrong with the muscles. I mean, that seems to be what people complain of. The muscles hurt. They're tender over the muscles and so on. But really, nothing consistent on, uh, on biopsy. Nothing, the pathology just wasn't there. Initially, they found things, but really controlled uh, study of it. Really nothing on biopsy. But there is something with the muscles. If you do... Um, MRE, um, which is uh, a study where you vibrate the muscle and, and then look with an MR scan at the propagation of the wave through the muscle, you can look at the density of tissues. So applying that, it was applied initially to looking for tumors in liver because they also often are indistinguishable on regular MRI, but this will pick it up. So looking at muscles on the left side, that's a normal uh, upper trapezius. It's, uh, this tissue is homogenous, but someone with uh, fibromyalgia or myofascial pain and a localized tight area of muscle, you can see that the, um, you know, the, it's, the mu muscle is more dense. It is, it is a different consistency, and there is something going on with the muscle, but it isn't spasm, it isn't contraction, there isn't something microscopically wrong with the muscle. But there's something going on there. Muscles are holding tight more than they need to often. Is it a sleep disorder? There's this alpha intrusion into delta sleep, so with, you know, early on, well, it's just a variation on sleep disorder. But alpha intrusion into delta sleep happens in anybody with pain, so it doesn't really uh, differentiate. On the other hand, poor sleep is often a factor. Almost everybody with this uh, set of symptoms has sleep as an issue, um, and very difficult to improve symptoms unless restorative sleep is, is obtained. So if you can't get them to get this restorative sleep, uh, it's hard for the other, any of the other symptoms to get better. So it's a key thing to focus on. The other big uh, 
issue or, or uh, explanation was that it's all in their head. And this is what almost everybody who comes to see me, they've been told or it's been implied by docs that, you know, they think it's all in their head, that meaning they, they think they're crazy, but what they really mean is I have no idea what's going on here and I'd rather have the patient be kind of crazy than me not know what I'm supposed to do. So uh, it kind of gets put on the patient that it's all in their head. But your, head, your, your pain is all in your head too. So when I talk to patients about this to help set them at ease, they say, well, you know, I'm sure docs have said to you, oh, this is all in your head. And they go, yeah, yeah. And I say, well, it is. I mean, everybody's, that doc's pain is all in their head too. If you don't have your head, you don't feel pain. I've, and I can draw on my experience as a PM&R doc. So I have patients, spinal cord injury, patient who was out at the campfire, too close, sneakers started smoking, had a terrible burn, never felt it, never had pain because he had spinal cord injury. The signal never really got to his brain. So without the brain being involved, he didn't have pain. On the flip side, patient with a severe crush injury to his foot, severe neuropathic pain, wound doesn't heal, gets the amputation, still has severe pain in their foot. Exact same pain, it's in their foot, but they don't got their foot no more. So where is that pain? I mean, how do you explain that kind of thing when the thing that was causing the pain isn't even there? You're not gonna do anything to that foot to fix it. You're not gonna inject it. You're not gonna do anything. So where is that pain? It's in the central nervous system at this point, in the cord, in the brain. That's where that pain is really residing. So the brain is, is something you can't ignore with treating pain. It's the most powerful thing we've got to deal with pain. So that helps patients kind of get onto that side of things and think, well, yeah, that is something to consider, because otherwise they're just saying, they think I'm crazy, they want me to you know, go to a psychologist and all this sort of stuff. But on the far end of the spectrum, there is more psychopathology, as with any kind of chronic pain syndrome, and, uh, and there's an increased incidence of suicide in these folks, so you, you certainly can't ignore the fact that there is often uh, some psychological issues going on with, with folks with, with that whole body pain issue. The March 2019 Mayo Clinic Principles of Pain and Palliative Care Conference will be held at the JW Marriott in Palm Desert, California. We invite you to network with your colleagues and Mayo Clinic faculty by registering at ce.mayo.edu. Links to the course can be found in this podcast description. The newest uh, term here is uh, central sensitization, and um, and that's really something that that goes back a ways. They just are calling it that. There's one of the terms for uh, uh, widespread pain way back was called neurasthenia, thinking that there was some neural thing going on that was a central cause of pain and so on. So it's a concept that's been around. And but what they can do now is do functional MRI and look at people with chronic pain, and they see that there's increased connectivity in networks involved in pain processing, and decreased connectivity in networks involved in pain inhibition. So there is, are things going on in the brain, and these are reversed by cognitive behavioral therapy. You have someone go through cognitive behavioral therapy, and those connections normalize to some extent. So there's actually something happening when you do this. Uh, when I talk to patients about this, uh, I think the, the examples I give is, you know, our brains are constantly changing in response to sensory input. The, the connections are changing. Recent studies show that we're not getting any more cells since about uh, 
junior high or so. No more cells are being made, but the connections are constantly changing. That's how we learn. So that's very helpful. A concert pianist practicing the piano eight hours a day, moving the fingers, they feel the keys, they hear the music, initially see the notes and all that. More and more the brain gets taken over to run the hands. So that a concert pianist wiggling their fingers, lots of the brain lights up with just that little bit of movement. I will go my fingers, there's a little thing right here because I can't play the piano with a lick. But that sensor input changes what the brain is used to run so that a lot of the brain is running those hands. Unfortunately, with pain, same thing. Sensory input, more and more of the brain gets taken over to process pain, to run pain. So that someone with chronic pain, a little pick in the, arm, in, the, in the hand, lots of the brain lights up in response. Someone without chronic pain, it'll just be one little area the brain lights up. So to explain to patients that that's what you know, central sensitization is, it's more the brain is being used to process pain and to run pain. And I think that helps them understand then what the next step is to to manage things. So bottom line, the etiology really is kind of unknown. How, you know, how does central sensitization uh, show up or whatever? But um, I think some clues are that in twin studies, it seems to be 50% genetic and 50% environmental. And this is probably as higher than almost any other, any other disease entity that they've done twin studies on that it's that high, 50% uh, genetic component. Uh, it seems to start with some muscle pain secondary to dysfunction, lots of different causes of that dysfunction. There's triggers, it can be viral illness, uh, surgery, motor vehicle accident, extreme, extreme psychosocial stress. Some, for some reason, the muscles aren't working right anymore. And the more chronic and widespread the pain is, then there's this sensory coming in and more and more central sensitization plays a role. And at the far end of the spectrum, it becomes kind of indistinguishable from any other cause of chronic pain. If you've got chronic pain syndrome and your life is being run by your pain, then it doesn't matter if it's belly pain or headache pain or, or that foot that is no longer there but hurts like it is uh, still being crushed by the truck. Um, that chronic pain disrupting your life becomes the issue, the pain, and not so much uh, what's causing it. So as far as treatment approaches, how do you go after this? in your 20-minute you know, uh, um, time with the patient. So widespread pain, it really requires a multi-pronged approach. Um, first of all, taking the time to explain the diagnosis, and just because just having a diagnosis in a couple studies has shown to reduce medical resource utilization. Early on, they thought, well, don't tell them what they have. Don't give them a name for it. My God, they're going to be you know, claiming disability. They're going to be doing all kinds of things, because now they have something they can call it. But that hasn't been, been shown shown to be true. Then let them know what it isn't, and this is pretty easy to do. There's very few things that cause widespread muscle-type pain, and you can rule them out pretty easily. Screening labs, a CBC, a SED rate, CK, uh, thyroid, vitamin D maybe. There's really extreme low levels of vitamin D has been shown to associate with pain, but very few patients that I've had that you get their vitamin D up, does it fix it? But it, it, it's something to look into. It's simple to do. Um, I wouldn't get the ANA, room factor, EMG. Those really only if it's clinically indicated because a lot of people have a slightly elevated ANA and then they'll grab onto it. I've got lupus. And so um, it can be false positive. But if there's indication, if they've got joint stuff and so on, uh, then, then those would be things to do. Then the reassurance, you know, give the patient the responsibility to control their symptoms. This is something that they can manage. This isn't something that someone's going to fix them. Give them a, one pill, do one kind of therapy or whatever. 
And then cognitive behavioral therapy is often very effective. Um, you know, catastrophizing is something that increases activity in those same brain areas associated with attention to pain. So cognitive behavioral therapy to focus on uh, treating catastrophization and uh, uh, pain in general uh, is, is very helpful. Then, next step is to treat that sleep disturbance I was talking about. Very important part and, and almost uh, a primary thing you got to do. The goal is restorative sleep. Number of hours may not tell the whole story because often, yeah, I sleep all night, but I wake up like I haven't slept at all. I'm tired still. <clears throat> so they're, they're, what I tell patients is likely that what they're doing is they're, they're getting to sleep, but they're just kind of skimming sleep. They're not getting the deep levels of sleep that's required for that total body relaxation and, and, uh, and restorative whatever happens when we sleep, which we don't yet understand very well. But they're, maybe they're waking up frequently, or they're not all the way waking up, but they're not getting that, that deep kind of sleep. So how do we get that? The other thing, though, is to understand there's other reasons that people aren't getting sleep and you need to make sure you rule those out because if those are there and treatable woohoo then you've got a got a win on your hands because sleep apnea is is not uncommon in these folks restless leg syndrome uh, sometimes a formal sleep study would be warranted to just rule those out and treat them if they're there Trazodone is a medicine that helps with sleep. The sleeping pills out there don't, you know, all of them say, you know, only 10 to 15 days at most to take and because they don't really help with that deep sleep uh, that they need to get. Uh, so the trazodone is one that seems to help pretty well. It's an old medicine, uh, but starting low, going slow, like you've heard ad infinitum during this course, uh, is the way to go. And you know, sometimes they're very these folks are sensitive to everything. So sometimes with medicine, they'll take one trazodone, they'll sleep for three weeks or something. Doc, I could get out of bed. And so I usually have them first. What they do is, you know, take the pill, lay down in bed, lick the pill once, and put it on their nightstand. See how they do with that. Did you do okay? Okay, so, uh, well, yeah, I slept for a, a couple days, but I, that wasn't too bad. So then, you know, maybe they could take, but start low, half of the smallest pills of 50, take half of that, and, uh, or even a quarter of that, and then add it very slowly. But it's usually pretty well tolerated. It helps get that, that more ordered sleep and help, helps it to be more refreshing. Amitriptyline, nortriptyline, starting low is another option. If they're already on um, cyclobenzaprine, is another. It's a tricyclic, but not for depression. But it's a same a variation of amitriptyline. So if they're already on that, but they're sleeping all day because they're taking it all day, just have them take it just at night. But it's a hard to. It's ten is the smallest, and, and sometimes that's too much, and they still are sleeping in the next day. But if they're tolerating it, it helps them sleep. That's not a bad way to go. Then treatment of stress, anxiety, depression. I, you know, I tell them that's not what's causing your pain, but it runs together a lot. It overlaps. Just about everybody we see in the, that, uh, in the fibro program at Mayo, 80% have depression or have had depression or are being treated, uh, uh, have been treated in the past for depression and so on. And if you don't manage that well, it's very hard for the pain stuff to get better. So if there is clinical depression uh, present, uh, overall improvement not likely and it's well treated. The dual uptake uh, inhibitors, um, are most effective, and uh, so duloxetine is one we've talked about, and uh, uh, nortriptyline actually is, is helpful, but it's not the first line one you'd go with. Venlafaxine is another one that is sometimes helpful. So that's, that's kind of the route to go. If there's significant uh, depression, you know, call in help with the psychiatry folks and so on would be, would be something to do. Stress management classes can be helpful. 
Um, anger and sadness increase sensitivity to pain in those same areas of the brain light up. So stress management, if they say, well, I don't have any depression, and often they, you know, they may not, but they've got stress, although otherwise they would be coming in with this problem with this widespread muscle pain. So stress management classes are helpful. Be careful with support groups. Support groups are kind of, uh, in general, I'm, I'm in favor of, but I, I've been to a few to give a talk at, and uh, beforehand I'm just sort of, spying on what the conversations are and often it's yeah how's your pain oh my pain is terrible oh yeah what about my pain i can't even do this well i was in bed for a week oh well i've got you know disability for mine oh really how did you do that oh i i hear you call this guy he can get you disability and and so it's it's the wrong kind of support often so um, you want a, a support group where they're trying to focus on function and and getting uh, more functional rather than how how bad their pain can be then another key thing is improving aerobic fitness and strength. So gradual introduction of a low impact program, walking, swimming, stationary cycling. And again, they've got to go start slow. First day, get up off the couch, walk around, sit down, see how that goes. Wait till the next day. Anything hurt? Not too bad? Okay. Walk twice around the couch, then sit down. How's that going? So very slow progression. That might be a little too slow, but that, you get the idea. Go very slow with it. Avoid weightlifting or heavy resistance training. Uh, avoid co-contraction. What happens with a lot of these folks is the muscles are tending to all hold tight at once. You know, they move at end block, so to speak. So if they're trying to make muscles work that are already holding tight, they get sore very easily and they give up because it, it doesn't work, it hurts. That's why I think the more repetitive movement things, aerobic kinds of things where it's contract, relax, contract, relax, normal muscle movements, uh, that's why it helps. They, they relearn how to get their muscles to move normally instead of holding tight and co-contracting. And once they've got more normal muscle movements, then doing some strengthening is helpful with real low resistance uh, perhaps because they're all deconditioned too because they haven't done anything for a long time but avoiding that, that hold tight co-contraction. Sometimes if it's uh, in certain positions where they do it, they uh, get really bad when I'm working at the desk, you know, doing some uh, EMG biofeedback to learn how to relax the muscles is helpful. Um, higher levels of aerobic fitness, flexibility, and strength have consistently been associated with less pain and fibromyalgia. So almost every study that's looked at this, if they are able to improve the, their fitness level, their symptoms all, all get better. Not go away, but they get better and they can be managed. As far as medications, you know, the medications are never by themselves the answer. They can be helpful as an adjunct. You know, these are the ones that have been approved for fibromyalgia, you know, uh, pregabalin, duloxetine, milnacipran, and Civella. Uh, and, and the key, again, is to start low. I have the dosing and kind of the target dose. Sometimes people stop well before they get to the target dose and, and say it's not. So if, if they're tolerating it, you know, progress up to the full dose before deciding it didn't work. And it can take some time uh, to work. Uh, the nice thing about trazodone, it can help with sleep almost right away. So if you take that at night and then maybe try some of these, for the, these can be helpful for the pain. But, and they're not magic, you know, if you kind of look at some of the uh, combination of the uh, controlled trials, you know, 30% pain reduction versus placebo, you know, here's the, the medicine, 46%, placebo is 34%, you know, so you get about a 10 or 15% improvement over placebo with these medicines, um, so it's not, uh, you know, magic by any means. The best one looks to be, you know, tricyclics was 48% versus only 30%, um, in, so anyway, uh, they're, they're not the full answer, it's, it's just a little bit better than placebo. 
Uh, other drugs have been useful, uh, gabapentin, some studies, uh, Mirapex is a Parkinson's drug, some, especially if they've got restless legs too, that's a, that's a reasonable drug to try, but these are things that are you know, down the line uh, sorts of things, certainly not first, first line things to try. Things not to use opioids, because then they'll never poop again, right? We just heard about that. Um, they're not a, a long-term answer to this kind of pain. <clears throat> and uh, NSAIDs are, aren't either. I mean, taking them occasionally to help with pain, but long-term, all the time on NSAIDs. And I had a nephrologist who followed me once at one of these meetings and said, thank you for saying that. We see so many people's kidneys uh, destroyed by on ongoing NSAID use. And then for those who have uh, chronic pain syndrome, this widespread allodynia, you know, the, I hurt from a foot above my head to two feet into the ground is sort of where my pain extends. My hair hurts even when you squeeze it. That sort of thing, you know, that, then a cognitive behavioral approach, which you've also heard about this week, um, in a pain rehabilitation center, if it's, if it's complex and their, their whole life is being run by their pain, then that's the approach that really is going to be needed. There's been several reviews and Mayo Clinic proceedings over the last few years that are, that are good synopses of, of how to uh, go at this uh, treating patients. And um, this is actually northern Minnesota, not today, but in the summer. So it can be okay. Thanks. Mayo Clinic conferences like this one welcome physicians and healthcare providers from across the country and the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.